Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Juno, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I welcome Michael Graff back to the show. Graff was the guest on episode 35 back in June of 2015. When we talked back then, he was the editor of Charlotte Magazine. He was also writing for places like SB Nation Longform. Now Graff is a freelance writer and editor. He recently published his first piece with ESPN.com, a story that focused on the life of former NBA legend Muggsy Bogues. That story, how Muggsy Bogues saved his brother's life and found the meaning of his own, explores the lives of two brothers, Muggsy, the superstar, and Chucky, the older brother who spent many years battling drug addiction, but got clean once he started living with Muggsy. The story was perfect for Graf, who loves to write about love and family. There is something about caring for a loved one, caring for a family member that really connected with me. Um, I like to see the lengths people will go to for their family and, um, and for people they love. While Graf is still doing a lot of reporting, he's also started writing and publishing some incredibly moving and beautiful essays, including ones about a high school friend whose daughter battled childhood cancer and another about what happened when he tried to cut negative people out of his life. Surprisingly, he really came to love the essay form about five years ago when he had to write editor's notes for Charlotte Magazine. There were times when we'd do an essay on, or we'd have a story running on the beach or something like that, or a story at the beach or something, and I would write about a memory I had at the beach. And the response to those columns just became, or those editor's notes really became, um, it was so strong and people just kept coming up to me and saying, I love your editor's note. And I was like, I never thought I would have anybody ever say that to me. Graf has written for ESPN, The Guardian, Garden and Gun, The Oxford American, Politico, Success, Washingtonian, Our State, and Southwest The Magazine, among others. He writes the monthly column for the back page of Charlotte Magazine where he was the editor from April of 2013 until August 2017. As usual, we've linked to the Muggsy Bogues story and much more of Graf's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to to be back. I'm honored to come Uh, back. You were you were on the 35th episode, uh, and actually, I just did 35. the math in my head. You were on the 35th episode four years ago, uh, and really? now you're going to be on the 70th episode, which means oh, you no are really? perfectly spaced out <laughs> every 35 <laughs> episodes. So I guess uh, on episode 105, I'll have you back on <laughs> at some point in time. Um, wow. But uh, uh, that's fascinating. It is crazy. I, di- I didn't even realize that until I was looking at my notes here. Um, but we talked four years ago about two lanes to Okikik, Akokik. I pronounced it wrong. I pronounced it wrong four years ago and I pronounced it wrong again. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Uh, and then uh, when I saw the Muggsy Bogues uh, story with your byline on it on ESPN.com, uh, I knew that A, that I would need to read it, uh, and then B, that I would probably want to, that it would make me want to talk with you uh, again here on the show. Uh, and then, of course, after I read it, I, I, I was right. So um, that was exciting to see. Was that your first piece on ESPN.com? Yeah, it was the first time I've written for them, and it's been fun to... Uh, hear from folks again. It's funny how, you know, the story for ESPN will connect with an audience of uh, people that I maybe hadn't heard from in a while, like old friends that I used to watch sports with when I was a kid and stuff like that. So, um, so it's neat to say, neat to hear that you wanted to talk to me again after it ran too, because that's sort of a fun thing about stories, I guess. They connect people in different ways in various ways. And this one, has done that. I've heard from college friends who read ESPN and uh, just people I haven't heard from in a long, long time. And um, it's sort of the, uh, I don't know, it's the joy of doing this, I guess, sometimes is that uh, sometimes you write something that connects with somebody you haven't heard from in a long time. So it's good to talk to you again. Yeah, awesome. Uh, can you, can you, start, can we start off, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what uh, the story is about? Yeah. So, it, uh, you know, the, the basic rundown is that Muggsy Bogues in 1995 was um, one of the most popular players in the, in the NBA. Um, aside from Michael Jordan, I guess he was probably the most popular. He, you know, he's five foot three. Everybody loved him. He was on this team that the Hornets team that had, you know, everybody's talked about it this week because Jay Cole wore the starter jacket during halftime of the All-Star game. But, you know, everybody remembers that Hornet starter jacket uh, back in the 90s. And they were a well-marketed team and everybody knew who they were and everybody knew Muggsy because he was the shortest guy in NBA history. But a story that hadn't been told um, was that he was sort of having a tough time back then. And his, uh, he, his wife... Um, left him. They had a, you know, they had a breakdown in their marriage and communication. They say and a breakdown in trust. And he had a, he went in for a knee surgery and tried to just play it off like he thought he was going to be back in two weeks. And then um, it turned out to be a season-ending injury, injury essentially. Um, and then at the same time, his mother called and said, um, you know, your brother is in real trouble and. Uh, He's, his drug problem that we've all known about for a long time is going to kill him pretty soon if we don't do something, and you need to take him. So that at the sort of lowest point in his life, Muggsy brought in his brother, who was a drug addict, to live in the home above, uh, in a room above his garage in South Charlotte. And um, I just thought it was, you know, at, I thought it was a fascinating story of love. And, uh, you know, I knew the ending. Um of the story and I knew how it went and Muggsy was very open. I mean, it takes, sometimes it takes time to tell a story to, for a person to tell a story like this. And Muggsy had, if you look back through stories about Muggsy and, you know, I, I did, um, Nexus searches for Chucky and Muggsy and Chucky just never shows up anywhere. Um, and, Muggsy for lucky for me, I guess he was ready to talk about it this time and lucky. I mean, I think it was just the right time for him to tell the story um, that 
it's funny because last it's one of these stories that last summer I, it, you stumble upon it, right? So last summer I was last May, uh, Charlotte Magazine, the city magazine where I was the editor for four years, um, they asked me to do to contribute to their 50th anniversary issue. And the idea behind the issue was 100 moments that shaped the city of Charlotte. Well, the Hornets coming to Charlotte was one of them. And they wanted like, they wanted essentially 150 to 200 word as told to about the Hornets coming to Charlotte in 1988. It was a huge moment for the city. And so I thought I would do it with Muggsy Bogues. And um, so for the interview, I went to his house. Um, the interview was at one o'clock on a Wednesday or something like that. And I'm standing in his kitchen and uh, his daughter lets me in and she says, dad's not here yet. Uh, he's on his way. Um, I'm like, okay, well, here I am standing in Muggsy Bogues' kitchen <laughs> and out of nowhere, a door opens and I sort of thought it was Muggsy cause I could see, um, you know, it was a short person, it was somebody <laughs> who was short and skinny and, but it wasn't, it was another guy who kind of just had the same um, body structure as Muggsy. And this guy walks into the kitchen and he looks out the window and he says, Hey, you move your truck? <laughs> and I said, excuse me? And he says, yeah, can you move your truck? <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, yeah. And I moved, so I moved it into another spot and apparently that wasn't good enough. And Chucky said, <laughs> no, 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 man, move it over there. And apparently I was blocking where Muggsy was supposed to pull in. So Chucky's always looking out for Muggsy, oh, I nice. guess, even to this day. And um, so when Muggsy got there and Chucky went back to his room, I asked him, I just sort of asked him who that was. I said, who is that? And he said, that's my brother, Chuck. And I said, I've never heard about your brother, Chuck. I've heard about your mom, your your kids and everybody, but I've never heard about your brother, Chuck. And uh, we talked about it for a while that day. And a couple of months later, I just sent him a note and said, what do you think about telling the story of you and Chucky now? And uh, luckily he was up for it. So Yeah. Now, did you know Muggsy um, it, prior to even doing that story, uh, given your connection with the magazine? Or, or was that the first time you had met him uh, at his house that day? No, actually, um, first time I met Muggsy was uh, 2013. Um, I had just moved to Charlotte. I was the editor of the City Magazine. And it was the 25th anniversary of the 1988 Charlotte Hornets that year. And so we wanted to run uh, an oral history of that season. And for anybody who doesn't know the, that about that team, I mean, if people, th you know, I, I know it's, it's hard to overstate what the Hornets meant to Charlotte. They were a small city at the time. Uh, it, it, was, it was 1988. They had never had a professional sports franchise. And here comes this NBA team with a mascot that was designed by uh, Jim Cheryl Henson, Jim Henson's daughter. I mean, Jim Henson made the Muppets, and the colors were teal and purple, purposely uh, sele purposely selected by Alexander Julian, who's a famous designer out of Chapel Hill. And they just did all this stuff to make people crazy about this team. And then they went out and went twenty and sixty-two, I believe, in their first year. But they sold out every night, and uh, and the city threw a parade after that. Right. And uh, so, in 2013, we wanted to do an oral history of that sort of magical season, and really was in Charlotte. There is a before the Hornets and after the Hornets, um, and 
after the Hornets, you know, Charlotte became a town that has hosted, you know, national political conventions and places like that and things like that. A lot, and a lot of it is because of those Hornets um, that they proved that, you know, they could handle a professional sports franchise. And so um, we had Matt Crossman, uh, a great writer out of, um, who's now in, um, out in the middle of the country in St. Louis. And, but he was in Charlotte at the time, and Matt Crossman started to call people about this Hornets team. And, um, and everybody wanted to talk about it. He, he would send me a text every day to tell me who he got. He's like, I got Muggsy, I got Dell, I got George Shin, the owner. I got Felix Sabatis, a big business owner who invested in the team. I got, uh, one day he said, I got David Stern to call me. Like, <laughs> I don't know where David Stern called him, the NBA commissioner. And everybody talked to him. So we ran this great oral history. And um, we sort of offhandedly asked Muggsy and Chucky, or I'm sorry, Muggsy and George Shin, the owner of the Hornets, if they would come and be a part of the cover shoot. And Sure enough, one day Muggsy and George Shen walk into our office and uh, and take photos for the cover. And it was the first time they'd seen each other in 15 years, which is sort of a, a magical thing too. They've rekindled their relationship after that too. So yeah, you know, when you learned that uh, that Muggsy had this brother that you had never heard of, um, and you met him, you know, at the house that time. Uh, in in your in your journalist in your writer brain, what made you start thinking there that there might be a really interesting uh, story there that you that that you'd want to see if Muggsy would open up even more than he did on that day that that you talked with him? Well, I knew that he had been Chucky had lived in the house for twenty three years, and um, and I don't I'm really interested in stories about family and love and. Um, they, uh, you know, it came along at a time, and it's, it's just a roundabout way. It came along at a time when we had to put my father in a nursing home for the. He was in hot. He's in hospice. He was in hospice care, and uh, we had to put him into a nursing home. Uh, he couldn't handle himself at home. We couldn't take care of him at home anymore. And there was something about caring for a loved one, the caring for a family member, that really connected with me. Um, I like to see the lengths people will go to for their family and um, and for people they love. And there was also an element of it that I thought, you know, in some ways it's timely. We have certainly no shortage of stories of um, drug overdoses and troubles in this country. Um, now it's, it seems like every generation has a different drug that plagues them and uh, – and so Chucky had his own drugs back in the 90s, and there's a different generation of drugs this time. But uh, I thought that that would connect with people in a lot of ways. You know, there's no one right way to try to help a family member who's going through that. Uh, Muggsy did it his way. He readily admits that, you know, some people will probably say he should have taken him to rehab and it was dangerous what he did, but he sort of figured he would lose his brother if he took him to rehab. Loyalty is such a big thing in their family. He thought that it would, Chucky would sort of make him feel like he turned his back on him. Um, so there were multiple elements, you know, I thought it was timely in terms of the national conversation, um, about drugs, but also I just really, you know, family is the family unit. is It's just something to me that, 
I, there are so many stories within that um, that I knew there had to be something more there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How much time did you end up getting to spend with with his family uh, reporting reporting this story? Oh, look, a whole, whole lot actually. They were really generous. Um, <laughs> you can't um, you can't do a story. You can't do a story like this in one interview. I don't. I don't think you have to. Um, well, even two interviews. Um, I was lucky with this one in that not only did I get the time with them in the fall, um, several days in the fall over the course of September through uh, December, but then in January, um, the E60 team, the, the producers and, uh, and the team there, they came in and they wanted to get their shots and spend some time with them. So I got to go and watch those interviews too and collect just a little bit, you know, a few more anecdotes where I, you know, they, you know, as a reporter, you kind of always want to be a fly on the wall. Um, with stories like this, it's hard because they, you know, they, I wasn't, it was hard to do that with just me coming over to talk to them about the story. But with the 60 team, they're following around at games and stuff like that. I was able to pull, you know, they focused a lot on Muggsy at the games and I was able to sort of talk to Chucky in the background backdrop of those interviews and um i you know I, I learned a lot more about chucky standing to the side on those interviews than i did even just like sitting down with a recorder in front of him because he was able to open up a little more um be relaxed um chucky was really ner- mugsy's obviously very media savvy chucky was chucky was really nervous um about these stories um so he's he's just a wonderful he's just a wonderful character. He yeah. was something else, you know. Yeah. You uh structurally uh the story begins and ends at Muggsy Bogues night uh at the Spectrum Center in December. Um and that ending is is just an an absolutely beautiful ending uh in in so many ways. Um were were you uh, is that something that you were you were with them up in that suite when he when he shouted that down uh and and like I'm guessing I'm wondering, or at the very least, if you, you when you saw that happen, did you know that that was going to be the end of the piece? Yes, I was running back and forth between the floor and upstairs at the time because I wanted to see Muggsy get on the floor, mm-hmm. and then I wanted to listen. But I knew that there would be a video recording of what Muggsy said on the floor. I knew that that would happen, but it would, obviously wouldn't be any video of Chucky. So I ran back and forth, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Right before Muggsy went on the floor, or right as he was going on the floor, I ran back upstairs. And, um, and Chucky was just standing there the whole time, just yelling. Uh, my big little brother, my big little brother. Um, and you have to kind of, you know, Chucky's... I think in the story, I hope I introduced Chucky enough to let to, that people could even hear him say that. Because Chucky has a very distinct way of talking. He everybody from Del Curry to Del's sister, Jackie and Muggsy's wife, everybody sort of has their own imitations of the way Chucky talks, but he, <laughs> he sort of, I, I think I say the story, he has like a little curtsy on the end of each sentence where he like, he, his voice just kind of pitches higher and higher at the end. Cause he gets so excited when he says something <laughs> that, um, and so just watching that and just watching his excitement and, um, 
Chucky is the least material, one of the least materialistic people I've ever interviewed. And, um, he genuinely, genuinely, the only thing he cares about on a daily basis is his family. And, uh, and, there's something just really beautiful about that. I've tried to friend him on. It's funny. He he set up a Facebook account. And he has like six friends, and I tried to friend him, and he still hasn't figured out how to add me. <laughs> um, but yeah, the structure, though, you know, the stru- as far as structure goes in terms of writing, I actually started the story in 1995 um, on the first draft, mm-hmm. and. Uh, the my editor uh, at ESPN uh, suggested starting in the present um, to give it a little more immediacy, and uh, and I thought it was a great suggestion, and we I just went with that, and so we did a more t- it was a sort of a more typical structure I think where you start in one place and you wind up back at that place, um, but it was that was his suggestion, and I. Basically, the second section of my story was the first section when I turned it in as a draft. And okay. then I wrote a whole new first section and sort of split up the beginning and the end. And um, another testament to to good editing, I yeah. guess. That's, yeah. um, uh, it's, you know, I, I was an editor for a long time. So I, I think as a freelance writer, I have... Um, a leg up on some folks and that I really, really just, I have a special appreciation for what editors go through on a day-to-day basis. Right. And so when you find uh, anyone who is willing to care about the story, like you care about the story, you, um, you tend to listen. And, uh, um, there were some things that they, you know, I didn't agree with and there was, but you know, from on an overall, uh, from a bigger picture sense, he, they were right on the money. Yeah. Uh, and I think it turned out better. Uh, it, uh, most stories turn out better with editing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Who, uh, who, was, who was the main editor on the piece? It was a guy named Dotson, and uh, he's tremendous. He's, um, it was just his first time I'd ever met him, um, and we talked on the phone several times in the course of the, the past couple of weeks. Uh, the on um i actually turned this so there's always a story behind a story right, right, but, uh, right. my deadline for this story was january 11th um my dad died january 11th i turned the story in i had the story pretty much you know written it was obviously not um, but you know, in the last, I usually try to wait until the last minute to turn a story in because you never, you know, right. <laughs> I was, nothing, nothing ever feels like it's done. Right. Like, right. especially with a long form story, you can play with it forever. So in the last week, I usually try to just tighten language and make verbs more active and, you know, get rid of passive voice and things like that. And I didn't really have time to do that. Um, because we were in the hospice house. Mm. So I sent it that day and I just said, um, you know, I hope that it works, but I'll be happy to change it later. So I, I would say that this wasn't my best first draft, which is was sort of unnerving because I was turning it into ESPN, <laughs> like and a place that I hope one day to work with again. And uh, this is the first story for them. And so as a freelance writer, I was really nervous because I thought maybe I hadn't put my best foot forward with the first draft. So, yeah. uh, but 
we got it there, I think, yeah. over time. Have you heard back from uh, Muggsy or the Bog- the Bogues family? Yeah, they were really happy. They were very busy this weekend with the All Star right, game. Right, so, uh, Yeah, I did hear from them. Uh, Muggsy has uh, posted the story a few times on social media. They got an E60, you know, um, which ran Sunday, uh, which they loved. Um, Muggsy is such a popular guy. People just, you know, I've. It's rare. <laughs> As somebody who writes for Politico uh, from time to time, um, and The Guardian and other sort of national audiences, right. I will say that writing a nice story for ESPN about family, uh, <laughs> it was, I told my brother, I said, nobody's yelling at me. Like, nobody's, <laughs> like, nobody's telling me I'm, you know, a foolish uh, liberal or crazy conservative or any of the things that people say sometimes when they read your political stories. So, All right, right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have my students in my sports journals and class read it because so often when I assign bigger, longer stories, everyone always complains that they're depressing stories. Uh, and so yeah. this is one that, that does de- definitely not uh, fit in that category. So that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Michael, we're going to take a short break. Um, when we come back, uh, I'll continue talking with Michael Graff. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. It's also brought to you by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm talking with Michael Graff, who just had a piece uh, focused on Muggsy Bogues, a uh, former NBA player and a Charlotte basketball legend, run on ESPN.com. Michael, the last time you were on the show, you were actually the editor of Charlotte Magazine, uh, but that's not the case anymore. You mentioned that, that you're not doing that anymore uh, a little while ago. Uh, can you talk about the decision that you made? Uh, it was about almost 18 months ago, right? Yeah, I left uh, the job in August of 2017. Um, it was a decision that I made uh, as much for personal reasons as professional reasons. I mean, really, in both. I uh, I thought that the editing job at Charlotte, the editor's job at Charlotte Magazine, was probably the best job in Charlotte, the best uh, journalism job in Charlotte. I still do, and um, so I was very fortunate to have it. Uh, but in terms of a career, the only next step would have been to go somewhere else to leave Charlotte. And I didn't want to leave Charlotte. Um, my wife is from here. Uh, I met her here. I love Charlotte. Um, I've gotten pretty involved with the city. You know, I, um, very active in a lot of community organizations and things like that. And, um, just have felt since 2013 moving here, I've felt like it, it's really, the town has really embraced me and I've made it home and I've been able to help, um, contribute to the city. So I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to like go chase a job at a bigger publication in New York or Washington or 
um, somewhere like that. Um, and so I was really sort of wondering like what will be the next step in my career? Um, do I stay as editor of Charlotte magazine forever? Um, probably not. Like I didn't think that that was, um, I just, I'm somebody who likes to grow and try new things. So I didn't think that, um, we accomplished a good bit when I was there and I just wanted to stay in Charlotte. So I decided I'm going to give a go with this freelance thing. Um, I still am able to contribute to Charlotte magazine. You know, I write a back page column every month, which is fun. Um, and so I'm, I still am able to like, to stay connected to Charlotte in these ways. I, I love local, I love local journalism. Right. And it's sort of, it's my favorite type of journalism being involved in your own community. Um, but you know, the money's obviously better when you write for national publications. So right. I try to, I try to keep a good mix of stuff, um, between Charlotte and, um, you know, some of the stuff like the ESPN stuff. Um, it's really, you know, one day I'll be looking at precinct, you know, like what, how a precinct voted in South Charlotte or something like that, like, and trying to figure out how 100 votes flipped from 2016 to 2018, <laughs> or just a very local wonky story. And then, you know, the next I'll be, you know, I went to Utah for Southwest the magazine and um, doing a garden and gun story or something like that on a, on a woodworker or a really nice home out in Tennessee or something that, that, um, I just, one of the joys of freelancing, my favorite part of it is, is the range of stories that I'm, um, that I'm able to do. I actually wrote down just today, wrote down a the list of stories that I have and deadlines that I have coming up in the next month and a half. And, you know, I have a story for NASCAR.com. I have a story for this local nonprofit news startup. Um, I have a story that I'm writing for the, um, I'm actually writing a, a, sort of an essay for the library in Charlotte. I don't, you know, if, if I'm ever going to write, I guess, um, sponsored content or whatever it might be, I think I, I don't a, mind that's doing That's a good place library. to yeah, write. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, doing, you know, finished up a story for Gardening Gun. Um, a story for the Southern Foodways Alliance and looking into stuff for various other publications. So it's, it's, you know, the range of stuff is, is fun. And this is, I have 14 stories down here that I have in various stages of production. Um, and it's, it's quite a mix. Yeah. My I'm looking, I have, you know, at my desk now I have 1099s from places that I didn't even remember I wrote for. Right. <laughs> Um, taxes that makes tax fun. time really fun, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it does. I got a note yesterday. I, my wife sent me a picture yesterday of mail, and she said, "You know, it's uh, it was marked Royal Mail." And I'm like, what? And she's like, "Oh, it's your Guardian. It's your 1099 from the Guardian." Right. <laughs> so, like, um, I don't know. It's it's fun. Um, I've met a lot of good people at a lot of different publications, and. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's really fun to work with and, and see how different publications operate. Yeah. Because uh, writing for The Guardian is different from writing for Politico. is different from writing for ESPN. Um, it's certainly different from writing for Garden and Gun or NASCAR.com or Charlotte Magazine. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's quite a, it's, it's a fun mix. Right, right. 
Um, I, you've written uh, the stuff that, that uh, I was uh, this morning when I was getting ready uh, to talk with you. I was thinking about like the pieces that I that stick out in my mind um, that I've seen. And, and then I go and look and see when they were actually published. And it was like two years ago. But um, <laughs> but but like the pieces for Success Magazine, um, uh, yeah. especially uh, the one uh, there are actually two, actually. Um, but the, the first the first one that I remember seeing was what happened when you tried to cut negative people out of your life, um, <laughs> yeah. which I absolutely, um, absolutely love that piece. Um, but but, uh, you know, and then the piece that you just had in Oxford American um, uh, the longer uh, longer than the song yeah. of the whipper per will. Um, there, at least what I've noticed um, is very essayist, essay-ish, right? Um, where there is like some reflection on, on your own part, um, the, the, the type of work that, I, that at least I'm, that I've seen that, that stuck out. Um, is that something that's come naturally to you or, or, or is it something that's just come up based on the story that, that needed to be told? Interesting. Yeah. So essays, I've really gotten into them over the past five years. Um, and it started when I got, I had to write an editor's note for Charlotte magazine every month. And sometimes I would write, um, about what was in the issue. And I really didn't like those. I thought they were just, it was, I thought it was sort of trite to just say, look, do a rundown of what's in the issue. And so there were times when we'd do an essay on, or we'd have a story running on the beach or something like that. There's a story at the beach or something. And I would write about a memory I had of the beach and the response to those columns just became, or those editor's notes really became, um, it was so strong and people just kept coming up to me and saying, I love your editor's note. And I was like, I'd never thought I would have anybody ever say that to me, but they, and it was mostly because I was opening up a little bit about my family mm-hmm. and, and myself and my own sort of personal journey. And that's why my, you know, my column on the back page of Charlotte magazine is now called just along the way, because it's just kind of like stories I sort of see as, as you kind of navigate, you try to make it through the world. Um, and after that response, I started to do a few more. And then, um, in the summer of 2014, I went down to uh, the Mayborn Conference in Texas, and uh, Denise uh, Kirsten Wills was down there. And she, at the time, she was at the Washingtonian, and now she's at the Atlantic. And um, I had talked to her a little bit about writing for Washingtonian before then. And she, we went to a session one afternoon, and for some reason, it just struck me that I needed to write. I wanted to write a story about my dad's skydiving days. My dad was an elite skydiver for. Um, in the 1960s, and he jumped out of planes um, more than almost 1,200 times, and he could land on something the size of a dinner plate. And I just thought it was, you know, it's something that we'd never really gotten into. It was something that he was starting to open up about after he had his strokes. Um, and so I told Denise and I sat at the bar in Texas, and I told her that, and she said, "Let's do it." And so it was really the first like long essay I've written and um, and it was it was sort of like carving out you know pieces of your heart and putting them on a page it's um, it can it can be um, it can be fun it can be uh, insightful and then when it comes out 
uh, it's terrifying. Like you're just like you're scared to death uh, because you're like nobody's gonna give a damn. Nobody's gonna care whether I, you know, about me. Like I'm just me. I, I eat turkey sandwiches every day for lunch. Like I'm boring, right? Like, but it it seemed to connect, and so I just did more of it. And then the success, and then when success came along, I really thought. I was finding a groove there for a while. Um, and it was f- largely because uh, somebody else you've had, Mike Mooney, um, they contracted with him to edit there. He was going to edit some of their long-form stuff, and his job was to hire writers to do it. And so out of nowhere, sometimes I would just get a text from him with like the theme of the issue, and he would say, you know, what – do you think of this idea? Like, what do you think of, here's a quote. And that, that story about cutting friends out of your life, the quote was, um, you, it was from Jim Rohn and it was something like you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with or something like that, the exact wording. But he sent me that quote and he said, do you think you could write something about this? And (laughs) I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do a little experiment over the next month and see. Um, and they thought it was great, and they thought it was a great idea. And I just sort of monitored the <laughs> the time I spent with people back then, which is something that I would recommend for anybody, really, because um, I did I made a spreadsheet uh, for thirty days of um, every single hour of the day. So twenty, it was an Excel spreadsheet. It had from one to two. And if I spent the majority of the time in that hour with one person, I would put his or her name there. And then um, I counted up the number of hours, basically the number of times names appeared. Um, And it was, you know, it was interesting. It was, you you see how you're spending your time. And I think that's always a good thing for somebody to see. Um, And it the quality of the time I was spending with people was it, you know, I was trying to figure out, was I spending, was I paying attention to them when I was with them? Was I, how many texts did I spend at sending that time? How many Twitter messages did I send? How many emails did I send? How much time was I sort of, was I actually with those people? Um, and it's something my wife and I talk about a lot in our house because she's a, our Laura's, she, um, she has her own public relations business and it involves a lot of, you know, she has, she's like me has to communicate a lot with people. And so we're on our phones a lot and, um, and on computers a lot and, and calling and, and it's just, you know, it's, this is the communication business. It's a communication era. And, um, so we talk a lot about whether we're spending time together, talking to each other, or whether we're spending time together, sitting next to each other, with our phones in our faces. And that was what this story was about. It was sort of just like, examining and assessing the quality of uh, the relationships that you have. It wasn't necessarily like averaging out the five people. And then that was another story that when it went online, uh, people just seemed to really embrace it. And, I love um, it. And I need to do that thing with the spreadsheet as well. I love spreadsheets. I've, I've got a big <laughs> long spreadsheet that lists every run I've ever gone on um, ever since <laughs> really? I started running. Yeah in 2012. Um, and my wife and kids think I'm kind of crazy, but I think I'm going to, uh, create yet another spreadsheet now. (laughs) So, yeah, I see your posts about running and I'm always, um, I say jealous, I think probably. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm jealous. I I, should spend 
what's our envious i guess it's i should fun. spend more time running <laughs> it's funny because i was one of my new year's resolutions or one of my i don't want to make resolutions but a goal was to not post as much about running on facebook because i thought you're getting to be obnoxious no and then people actually started coming up to me and said like people that i know here at the university and saying you haven't posted have you have you been running i wait to yeah. see and i was like what so now so now i have to do it so um i at least yeah. uh, i feel and I've had some people tell me that they started running because they saw my post, um, which is which is which is cool. So, so I'm back. I'm back into the game, and I'm posting <laughs> again. Well, you, make me feel, you make me feel really bad about. Oh that, no, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm lucky. I've got the time. Um, the biggest thing is the time. So, and you, yeah. speaking of running, uh, it bring it brings up another. I think one of my favorite pieces um, that I've read of yours in the last couple years. Uh, and that was the life truths I learned in the mountains um, for su- for success, um, mm-hmm. and primarily because that piece contains like two things that I think about a great deal, uh, and that is running and as well as childhood cancer. Um, so, can, can you talk a little bit about that piece and and how it came about? Yeah, that was another uh, you know issue where Mike sent me a note and he said we have our January issues on. Uh, the overarching theme is something like new year, new you or something like that. It was just basically restarting, um, like most, a lot of January issues are. And I had an old college or an old high school friend I'd grown up with, um, who, uh, he, he didn't go, he, he had a kid, his daughter had, um, had, uh, a couple of years before she had developed cancer and had gone into you know, they spent the past, they spent almost a year and a half, I guess, driving from where they lived in Fredericksburg, Virginia, to into Washington, D.C. And it's about 50 miles. But if you've ever driven in Washington, D.C., you know, 50 miles is not 50 miles. Um, and so they were driving, you know, round trip four hours a day, um, sometimes for these treatments. He worked in heating and air conditioning. She was a school vice principal. And I've always just, I always just sort of admired his, um, the way he approached that. Uh, he used to worry a lot about politics and things like that. And then all of a sudden this happened and he stopped worrying about a lot of things. And, uh, he focused his attention on that and he really, it was one of these stories where you just, it's so cliche to say, but you really sort of see what matters. And, uh, you know, I'd sort of followed them through that journey, uh, just from afar. And, uh, one day they decided that they were going to move from Fredericksburg and out of their 3,500 square foot house, um, because they figured they had too much space and they were going to live in uh, a tiny mountain town outside of Charlottesville. And they were going to build a tiny house there. And they, because all they cared about was family. And, uh, I just thought it was beautiful. So I, I, before I pitched it, I sent Jason, my old friend, a note. And I said, what do you think about the idea of, of writing about this to sort of as a way to help other people? Um, and they were receptive to it. And um, I pitched it and they, the success loved the idea. And the other side of the story is my friend had, while he was at the, well, you know, he was spending all that time at the hospital. He would start, he started to run mm-hmm. around the hospital. And one day he just like ran like 13 miles around the hospital, like lap after lap after lap. <laughs> and so he really got into long distance running. 
and ultra marathons and things like that. Um, and so I got out like the day before I came, yeah, or two days before I went up, he said, um, he asked me how far my most recent run was or something <laughs> like that. And I had gone, you know, I'd started, it was just after I'd gone freelance. So I started running to run about eight miles or so in one on that Sunday. And he said, all right, we're going to go running when you come here. And I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so, um, we ran, uh, basically 10 miles in the mountains, uh, which is far different from running 10 miles. It's North Carolina coast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. After one mile, he, I heard him yell, like he sort of yelled back to me, we're, we're, we're a mile in my craft. This is easy. And, uh, <laughs> he was sort of like a billy goat on the Hills and I just couldn't make it, but he was very kind. And so I wrote an essay that was sort of about, you know, it was sort of a mix of those things. It was about the run, but it was sort of about journey and refreshing and, and all these things. And, um, there's a, as you know, there's sort of nothing like the feeling, uh, after a long, long run, um, where you don't feel like you have, you're so exhausted. You sort of just feel so good about your, yourself that you just feel like you can do anything you can eat anything you can <laughs> you don't have to feel bad about what you eat you know um and they're really in that place after i think um making it survive it after she's ruby the little girl survived the cancer treatments and um she's doing really well so awesome. um yeah just spending a few days with him and his family and that was three weeks before i got married too so it was oh, all man. just sort of yeah I don't know. I didn't sort of embark on these sort of emotional journeys. Um, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I told my editor at Charlotte Magazine, you know, how we were talking, Emma Way, and we were talking about um, the past few weeks, you know, it's been five weeks now since my dad passed, and we were talking, and, and I told her, I said, I'm not one of these people who can some people like after they lose a family member, they stay busy. Mm -hmm. They just really hurt. They, they, they like to just move and like plan things. And my mom's sort of that way. She's like checking off things on her list. And that's one way to handle grief. And I'm not really that type of person. I'm the person that kind of needs to sit with it a long time and like understand it. And cause it's a different feeling from anything I've ever had. And, um, and I try to, you know, some, a lot of times when I'm writing these essays, I try to capture those moments where people are feeling something maybe they've never felt before and try to um, show how they react to that. Um, I think it's really interesting to see. What's your uh, last question here? What's your last, what's your typical day like now versus when, when you were the editor at Charlotte Magazine? <laughs> um, well, I showered at about 1030 today. Uh, so, um <laughs> I ask people for for money more. Um, <laughs> I ask people to pay me more. Uh, that's that's a new thing. <laughs> it's different from when you get your check every two weeks. Right. Um, but a typical day now is is in a lot of ways it's similar. I mean, I had a bunch of stories in my head at Charlotte Magazine uh, on a daily basis, and now I still have a bunch of stories in my head. Um, but the uh, I can do them whenever I want to. I can, you know, as long as I get them in on time, if I'm working at one in the morning or, you know, at Charlotte, I had office hours. Um, but 
you know, I'm still interacting with people like you and still, uh, I think that's a lot of times people think freelancing is like going and being a recluse. Like to me, it's been the exact opposite. Right. right. Um, you still try to keep up with people and try to see, hear what they're doing. And, uh, I don't know. Those are the things that sort of give me life anyway, just, um, connecting with people and seeing, uh, how they're living. So do the same thing. It's just, I don't have to deal with corporate budgets and stuff like that anymore. Um, and, um, um, Halloween parties are much smaller (laughs) and Christmas (laughs) parties are no, there's no white elephant gift exchange in my (laughs) office, but, um, but it's fun. I, uh, I really enjoy it. Well, Mike, thanks for uh, thanks for uh, talking with me for uh, the seventieth episode of the podcast. And uh, if we keep our uh, our pace, if we keep our uh, the 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 I can't even think of the word right now. But if we keep going, <laughs> you will be back on episode one hundred and five because that's another yeah. thirty five. And uh, and we'll see if I can keep going that long. So, but uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's been fun talking with you. So, thanks for thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Um... JFK was the 35th president, so I wonder who the 70th president will be. I'm now, uh-huh. now, so, uh, yeah, but thanks for having me. It's fun. It's good to talk to you again. I've been talking with Michael Graff. He's a freelance writer living in Charlotte, North Carolina. He recently had his first ESPN piece published. That was titled, How Muggsy Bogues Saved His Brother's Life and Found the Meaning of his own. I've linked to that story, as well as many more by Graf, on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Our music comes from Audionautics. The promos and sponsorship messages were voiced by Mimi Lachlan and Gracie Eldrenkamp. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.